Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan on Cambridge 105. Welcome to episode three of Cambridge Minds, the series where we track down some of the brightest and most creative people in our city and find out what's on their Cambridge Minds. Two guests for you to meet as usual. In the second half, journalist, philosopher, tech guru and arch-tweeter Bill Thompson. But first, one of the UK's most distinguished lawyers. Nikki Padfield is a senior lecturer in Cambridge University's law faculty. She's worked as a barrister and a judge, she's practised law in Africa, and she's now the master of Fitzwilliam College. I think you'll find some of her ideas about how English courts work insightful and not uncontroversial, particularly in the area of sentencing. I went to see Nikki in the elegant old building called The Grange, which sits inside her college's beautiful gardens just off Huntingdon Road. So, Nikki Padfield, what do I call you? Do I call you Master Padfield or Mrs Padfield or who are you? I'm definitely Nikki. And what do you do, apart from being the Master of Fitzwilliam College, you work in law. So, what do you do? You seem to have lots of irons in lots of fires. When the new, inverted commas, Cambridge University Law Faculty was built about 20 years ago, they made the decision that because lawyers all worked in their colleges, we didn't need offices. So I think it was probably the wrong decision, and it probably wouldn't be made that way today. But a fact of life is most of the law faculty don't have an office in the law faculty. So it makes life easier in some senses that my main office is here where we are. And whether I'm working on law or Fitzwilliam College or anything else, it all happens here. The law famously is an ass. Why are you interested in it? I think I've always had a real interest in worrying about why the law is wrong. I think when I was a kid, people would have told you that I liked arguing and I was very excited about amnesty and human rights and things like that. So I think I started reading law because I wanted to make the world a better place in a very, very naive way. Did you want to be... Perry Mason or Rumpole of the Bailey or any of those sort of great fictional lawyers? I don't think that I did very much. I think I knew I was going to be a barrister, but I also think I always knew and knew increasingly by the time I became a student that actually it was very difficult to be a successful barrister in that sort of mould and I didn't get very far in my career as a barrister before I dropped out for reasons which we may come to later. And I think I've always been quite relieved in a sense that I dropped out because I never had to learn whether I would succeed or fail in that world. I dropped out and left it. The hardest thing I would have thought, and this may be the most completely naive question about being a barrister, is you do have to stand up and defend people and you must be a hundred percent sure are guilty I mean how do you deal with that philosophically and emotionally 
I don't see the problem because if they tell you they're guilty and they're pleading not guilty, well, then, of course, you've got a problem and you don't represent them. But if they tell you they're not guilty and you believe that, well, they probably are, they still have the right to argue their case. And is that always true, Nikki, that you hear them say, no, honestly, Nikki, I'm not guilty, and you think, you know what, I think you probably are, but I'll take the case anyway. I think the problem is pretty different nowadays. The system is so skewed to push you to plead guilty, whether you are or you aren't, in order that we can get a guilty plea, save a lot of money. So your lawyer has to tell you, look, I hear you say that you're not guilty, but you'll get a one-third discount if you plead guilty. And it looks quite bad. You say it's self-defence and that he was winding you up all evening in the pub. But, hey, actually, the CCV evidence and you look drunk and you look as though you were if I was you I'd plead guilty um it's a real problem there because we don't really know whether he's guilty or not we weren't there they probably were all drunk at the time should you have the right to let the jury decide juries acquit very often because they have to be sure and it's difficult to be sure but our system says no no if you plead guilty you get a third off it's a huge pressure on people to plead guilty your question implied that lawyers are busy defending people who they know are guilty, who are trying to say they're not guilty. I think the pressure is more the other way, of anything. Do you watch things like Broadchurch and uh, that brilliant French thing called Spiral? Do you watch those procedural dramas? Am I allowed to admit that I never watch anything? Of course. Yeah, no, I... So you don't sit there like I imagine some lawyers do, watching those things and going, well, that's not right, that could never happen. No, I don't. There are only 24 hours in a day and I wish that I spent more time watching television, watching films, but it doesn't happen very often. OK, well, we're getting to the crux of this now then, Nikki. So what do you do? What, you know, while some of us are watching telly or going down the pub, what are you doing? Are you reading texts? Um, it would be quite fun and self-indulgent to work out how I did spend the day. Um, Let's start with some of the more obvious issues. I have an elderly mum in a nursing home in Cambridge and I try to see her every day and she would be the first to tell you that I don't manage. And I have a granddaughter and I have a husband who is much neglected and would like to go on holiday. So all those sides of life are all very important. And there are other parts of life which, for example, Winter Comfort for the Homeless, great Cambridge charity that I've been involved with for years, doesn't get anything of my time that it ought to get. So there's all that side of life before you get to work. And then work does fill to expand most opportunities. Being master of a Cambridge college is a wonderful privilege, but it's also fantastically time-consuming. Once we've got beyond the 750 current students, there are the thousands of ex-students who are enormously fun to meet, including yourself, if I may say so. Because Fitzwilliam College isn't a building, it's a community. Sometimes when we have dinners and things, I have to make a toast at the end. And I tend to say to Fitzwilliam College, past, present and future, because it is that continuity of the place which is... I think absolutely fascinating. So, Nikki, let's drill down a little bit into the work that you do at the law faculty and what you're interested in. Reading your very extensive CV, which is online and which runs to 11 pages, 
One of the words that leapt out was the word sentencing. Sentencing is something you're interested in. I would venture to say that the man in the street, the woman in the street, might think that sentences are a bit light these days. That's the feeling one one has. Are they are they right? Are they wrong? Has it changed? What's what's your view? They're undoubtedly wrong. The weight of a criminal sentence is very heavy on most people. So it depends how you measure sentences, I think, as to whether you think they're light or not. I got into sentencing because, like all young lawyers, you start with an interest in criminal law and it's a compulsory subject for all first-year law students. But actually you learn pretty quickly that definitions of rape or murder or manslaughter aren't in practice that interesting. What cases really turn on are questions of evidence, procedure and sentencing. And then I worked out, I guess, relatively quickly that actually what judges and magistrates say in court is only the what I like to think of as the front door sentencing message. How that sentence is actually carried out in practice is really interesting. And that's what I think the general public, inverted commas, if you know what I mean, doesn't really understand. They think that sentences are very light, but for example, if you're a sex offender, you're likely to be on the sex offender register for a very long time. If you are considered to be risky, you'll be subject to MAPA, multi-agency public protection arrangements. And even once you're released, your sentence is very far from over. And we have an increasing number of other sorts of orders which do hang on over people for the rest of their lives. We in this country have a huge number of life sentence prisoners. An awful lot of people think, oh, life sentences only mean about seven years nowadays. But it's just not true. The minimum terms for murderers are massively longer than that. And there are indeed a lot of people in prison who are immensely frustrated by the system which they perceive to be unfair because they've got minimum terms which may be more than 20 years imposed on them when they're let's say 20. Um, the issue which I've been interested in recently is what's known as joint enterprise liability. You're a young man on the night bus with your mate. Your mate stabs someone to death. You know your mate has a knife with him because he's that sort of bloke that he does have a knife with him. And it's not very difficult to find yourself convicted of murder in that you aided and abetted or it was a joint enterprise murder. We won't go into the law now. But you're convicted of murder because he did it. You still get a very, very long minimum term. That's what happened to Derek Bentley, isn't it? I mean, he was actually hanged for something that he didn't do. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But was there. And the law is exactly the same today. That's a film I have seen. That's a great film, Let Him Have It, I think. And the ambiguity in what he shouted to his younger friend who didn't hang, who did it, let him have it. Did he say, shoot him? Or did he say, hand over your gun? And no, it's a terrible, terrible case. And, of course, he got his conviction quashed, I think, in 1991. And everybody hates that kind of miscarriage of justice. But then you do hear... Don't you? Oh, God, he only got five years. He only got 18 months. He was let off lightly. And the implication of that is, what is that going to do when the next person is thinking of 
robbing somebody or mugging somebody or firing a weapon or something. Is there any connection between those two? No, that's a really interesting point. There is a lot of academic research on whether deterrence works. The message you hear about somebody else's punishment and in the academic jargon, what really matters is the subjective probability of detection. If you believe you'll be caught, then you might be deterred by other people's sentences. But if you don't think they'll catch you, then you're not going to be deterred. And there are all sorts of logical conditions which have to apply before somebody else's sentence is likely to have any impact on you. It's true also of the death penalty and countries which use the death penalty. It's nonsense to argue that the death penalty is a deterrent because people aren't going to be deterred unless they're caught. They believe they'll be caught. And also they have to be more frightened of the death penalty than they are of something else. And Drug smugglers, for example, are very often more fearful of their minders, the bigger fish in the pool, than they are of the ultimate risk of the death penalty. So we have to be very, very careful of thinking that deterrence works. The other thing related to what you just said, which I think is really important, is if you say to members of the public, what do you think a burglar should get? The research evidence is they'll say something much higher than if you then explain to them that the average burglar is, and then you come up with facts about that maybe they have an addiction problem and they have social problems or whatever. You give them the real fact scenarios of a real-life case. People are much less punitive and certainly no more punitive than judges are in real life. There's a wonderful website which people can play with um, on the Sentencing Council's website, which is called You Be the Judge. And you can play the game of sentencing people and what would you give this person in this circumstance. And I think most people who play that game are quite surprised with the actual outcome of these actual cases, that the law is as punitive as they hope it might be. The other people that I've spoken to in this series are acknowledged as experts by the rest of us because they have knowledge that we will never have and we don't really aspire to have it. So you can be a professor of statistics and we kind of look up to you and you can be a professor of the philosophy of science and we think, well, that's fantastic, or quantum theory. Now, you're an expert on the law, but we all think we understand the law and, in fact, it's enshrined in the law that the... 12 members of the jury can overturn all the great legal arguments than you, that you and others have, have put forward. So, and ignorance of the law is no defence. Exactly. So where does that put you as an, as an expert in, in law? I, of course, would want to say that I'm not really an expert. But that would be a colossal fib. In the hierarchy of the academic world in which I work, I am not a professor. I am merely a reader, one down our academic pecking order. And that's as it should be. I have not published as much as some of my colleagues have. I have been perhaps too involved in teaching and administration. I was a part-time judge for 12 years, which I like to say I think I am a much better academic because I was a judge. 
but I don't think I was a better judge because I was an academic, because what judges have to have is a lot of humanity, a lot of common sense, a lot of chairing skills, skills which don't necessarily come with being an academic. Lawyers don't necessarily have to know the law. They have to know where to find the law, where to pick it up quickly. And, of course, in a criminal court, there are usually competent lawyers on either side whose job is to make sure that the judge understands the law. You make it sound as though you could do the law by Google, that you don't have to know it as long as you know how to find it. I sort of wish that that could be one of our aspirations because the law ought to be accessible. People ought to be able to look up what the law is and know what it is. One of the terrible things that's happened in the last 30 years is that criminal justice has become deeply, deeply political in the wrong ways. And until about 1980, I think politicians sort of knew better than to make criminal justice political. They left it to the experts. But then something happened and people decided there were votes in being tough on crime. And it's become deeply political. We have far, far too much law. Governments spew out criminal justice legislation. They're constantly changing the rules. There's um, a wonderful case in the Supreme Court which I love to get students to read because the master of the rules, the head judge in the Court of Appeal, had said, it's outrageous that it's taken so long for us to reach the right answer in this case. And it's outrageous that the law is so complicated that it's taken a whole day in the Court of Appeal to get to the right answer. The case goes on to the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeal is told they've got to the wrong answer. And the law is too complicated for top judges always to be able to get it right. If top judges can't always get it right, lawyers can't always get it right, have a little sympathy for the poor old prisoner who is expected increasingly without good quality legal advice because of the squeeze on legal aid to be able to work out when their release date is. And it is incredibly complicated. I like to think or I like to talk about the law of how you get out of prison at the end of a sentence is rather like a snakes and ladders board. You can slowly go up the ladders, but then you hit a snake and you go down. And actually... For prisoners, it's really difficult to understand the law, the policy, the practice on what you have to do to achieve a timely release. I just want to go back to something you said earlier about barristers and everybody needing and deserving being defended. I suppose there's a feeling, isn't there, that most rich people can get off because they can afford clever and expensive lawyers. You know, are, are we right to feel as though you can pretty, buy justice? Don't you think you have to be pretty rich to buy justice? I don't think you and I would think that if we were arrested we'd want to spend a great deal of money on legal representation. But what if we were the sort of person who owned a newspaper or, you know, a sort of multinational billionaire? Could we, could we buy justice then? I put it to you that we probably could. Well, a slightly tongue-in-cheek answer to that question also is you'd have to be very careful that your money was buying you the right lawyer. There are a lot of lawyers who are not the most expensive lawyers who are often the best. Um, some of my work with the parole board, I've watched amazing 
advocates for prisoners at the parole board who are actually the legal executives, the non-professionally non qualified as barristers or solicitors who do this work all the time. And they have well understood that their client needs to convince the parole board to release them. It's not them that should do all the talking. Within our own court system, we have some many, many dreadful habits, one of which is the architecture of modern courts, which tends to stick the defendant in a glass box at the very back of the courtroom, and they're like a spectator at the back watching their own trial. And the dialogue takes place between the judge and the lawyers in the well of the court, and I think it's really shocking. The defendant should be there as the centrepiece in the court, sitting next to their lawyer, and we should hear from them more often. It's, I think, extraordinary, particularly when you get to mitigation of sentence. It's become the norm that the legal representative speaks for the defendant. Now, I think it's absolutely right that they have a representative and a representative who speaks. But if somebody is really sorry for the crime that they've committed, it comes better from their mouth very often than simply their advocate. Of course you need an advocate, and many defendants are not very articulate, and of course they need somebody to speak for them. But I do regret this priority given to security in courts, which means that we have isolated the defendant. I was lucky enough to be in Boston during the Boston Marathon murder trial and sat in on a number of court cases going on at the same time in that courthouse. And there are very many things which I do not appreciate in the American criminal justice system. But one thing that I was very impressed by was the fact that defendants, even those who we might consider to be dangerous, inverted commas, were sitting in the well of the court next to their lawyers. They were participating in their trials in a way that very often you don't feel that English defendants are. They tend to enforce formality. The judge is up high on a bench and judges and offenders don't communicate quite as easily as I think they ought to. I think real communication is really important. We should get them out of those wigs, shouldn't we? I guess so. I don't feel very strongly about that. Um, it's quite nice. I think vicars quite often like dog collars because people know they're the vicar without having to say, I'm the vicar. And there is something about the wig which is quite comforting to the judge, that if you're the judge, you know that you are not just Nicky Padfield, you are also representing justice. But I think on balance, you're right, the wig should go. But I'm not totally convinced. OK, so we're sitting in your absolutely beautiful study. We're surrounded by great journals and legal texts of one sort or another. Let's imagine, for the sake of argument, that you've got me really interested in criminal justice um, as a result of this half an hour. What's the book I should go and get now to get me really started on studying the law? I'm not sure that I would tell you that there is a book you should read. First of all, there is so much in on the internet that you should study. But most of all, I think you should go to Cambridge Crown Court, sit in the public gallery and watch it going on. When I was youthful, I used to go and sit in Reading Crown Court, 
Bracknell Magistrates Court quite a lot in my school holidays, and they were quite full of people. There were particularly, I think it's because there wasn't very much daytime television. Am I that old? When did daytime television start? I don't 80s. know. 80s. Okay, so there wasn't daytime television, so there were lots of old boys sitting there who really knew what was going on, who were really passionate about it. And I think it's really sad that today people aren't. There are very rarely even journalists in court. And that's depressing because it means people don't know what's going on. But if you go and sit in the back of a court... I don't think you can fail but to get a passion for criminal justice because however much you tell me to watch television programmes, they're not real life, and real life is much stranger than any television programme. We've nearly uh, reached the end of our time, but uh, it's important that we do the final thing. I haven't warned you about this because I think when I do, I get prepared answers. So here we go. This is the Cambridge Questionnaire, which I ask everybody that I interview for this series. Just uh, two or three questions about you and the town. Um, the first one is, what's your favourite walk? I live on my bicycle, so it's unfair to say my favourite walk. I love going to Wimpole Hall. We've got some friends who often take us walking behind there on Midsummer's Eve, which is lovely. I think there are lots of surprisingly lovely bicycle places. That bicycle ride behind um, the Fitzwilliam Museum along the Fen there is absolutely lovely. And frequently I'm on my bicycle in Cambridge and I think, golly, people come here on holiday and I live here. How fortunate I am. You know, amazingly, I hadn't met you till last week when we bumped into each other at, a, at an opening at the University Library. And then the very next day I saw you on your bicycle on Fen Causeway. I thought, I know, I know who that is and it, it was you. Now so. I'd have been going to see my mum in her nursing home. OK, here's the next one. Uh, what's your favourite place to eat? Definitely my kitchen. Definitely. Are we all invited? <laughs> yes, you are. Well, not all of you. Um, I love cooking, very simply, seeing what's in the fridge and making it. And do so you? I never eat out. And do well, you? I do. I eat out hugely in Cambridge colleges. And I have to say, I suppose, and what we haven't talked about in this interview so far, of course, the best place to eat is Fitzwilliam College. Fantastic chefs, fantastic. Well, it's cooking. clearly changed since my day. It was horrible in the 1970s. Do you still make kedgeri? No, I have never been served kedgeri, I don't think, in Fitzwilliam College. It is actually quite a hidden gem in Cambridge. I have seen, for example, Cambridge professors who've been here for many years in the city come to the college and they've not been here before. And even you will agree, our gardens are stunning, aren't they? Oh, it's very beautiful. And certainly compared uh, with my day when it was like an Ikea perched on the outskirts of town. Before anyone had heard of Ikea. Absolutely. Uh, my final question then is, do you have a favourite shop? I enjoy the Oxfam shops. You can buy very good things. In I bought a beautiful coat for my son's wedding in the Oxfam shop. Nikki Padfield, thank you very much for inviting me to your to your lodge um, at uh, Fitzwilliam College. Fantastic uh, to hear from you, and um, we wish you every success. Thank you very much. Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan. Nikki Padfield, Master of Fitzwilliam College and Senior Lecturer in Law at Cambridge University. Well, now the effervescent Bill Thompson. He's the man you need to find if your laptop's gone wrong or you need advice on which smartphone to buy. 
Not that he'll like me telling you that. Uh, You might also hear him talking about tech on various BBC programmes or writing about it in papers, blogs and on Twitter where at Bill T is a vital destination for anyone wanting to keep up with the latest tech news and gossip. 17,000 followers can't be wrong. But underneath all that punditry lurks a philosopher and a deep thinker about what's happening to society, to humanity in the digital age. I found Bill, as I usually do, drinking coffee in Cambridge City Centre. So, Bill Thompson, I've tried to explain some of what you do. How do you describe yourself? You know, when you meet somebody in the wine bar and they say, what the hell do you do? I try to avoid it because you just get that glazed look in their eyes. You know, it's like when I was a student and say I was a philosopher, you knew that was the end of the conversation. If pressed, I will say I'm a journalist because that's the thing most people understand. But, of course... It encompasses a lot of different activities. I'm, I'm a hack and a pundit. I'm a broadcaster and a writer. I advise a number of organisations about how to cope with the, the modern world of digital technology. And I have what I laughingly call a day job at the BBC, uh, where I manage partnerships for the archive. So yeah, I, I fitted a full-time job into my spare time about four or five years ago, um, but wanted to make sure that, that I kept like fingers in lots of pies because just as the network is so pervasive, if you're going to think seriously about the impact on, on our society of the network, you really need to have contact with lots of different organisations. It's not enough to be single-minded here. Otherwise, you rapidly lose perspective. So I've always thought, you know, as a journalist, I'm a working journalist, I also run a website or two, and, and I get my fingers dirty in doing the technology, not just because I enjoy it, though I do, I'm a bit of a sad geek, but also because it allows me to speak with credibility. So when I talk to someone about security issues on Linux servers, it's because I've had to deal with them myself. When somebody comes to me with you know, a, a story about you know, this radical new antivirus protection, I can take that their, their product apart because I know how these things work. I know what's likely to be true. My background in technology informs my journalism. And of course, crucially, my journalism informs my background in technology and both in add to my ability to to offer what I hope is sensible and useful advice to the organisations I work with or, 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 or spend time with. Unlike the traditional idea of an academic, it seems to me you love talking about what you like. I mean, I've sat with you on trains where it's impossible, basically, to shut you up, Bill, because you've always got something. You've got you've got a new gadget. You, you You're really excited about this stuff and you want to communicate about it. I do, and, and I am excited about it. You know, it, it's like this, this term geek is something that used to be used as a term of abuse. You know, honest people, I haven't bitten the head off a live chicken for years and I haven't even been near the carnival. But I am a bit of a geek in that I'm not embarrassed about my love for delighting some of the things that modern technology can give us. And, and I'm pleased to share that. What I think I do differently is I also have the ability to, to, to be self-aware, to reflect on my enthusiasm, but also to consider the, the context within which this technology is produced, the manufacturing systems, the impact on the environment. So I pick up my nice, shiny new smartphone and, you know, got it here. And I really like you know, the, the, the Touch ID on an Apple iPhone 6 because you don't have to type in a number. You just put your thumb on it and it works. It's, 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 it saves you all, all milliseconds. 
every time. But I like it. However, I'm also reflecting on the fact that, you know, the rare earth minerals that go in to make that phone work are, you know, the cold hand of things are mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo in appalling conditions, that, you know, that the supply chain to get this from, that for Apple to make this in China is really an issue about, you know, if we think what's happening in Qatar with the FIFA World Cup is bad, you know, go and look at working conditions in some of these factories. There are a whole load of social and political aspects to our access to and use of the technology that we can't afford to ignore but I will still have my delight in the toy and will try to keep both of those things in my mind at the same time because that way we can think okay what are the capabilities of modern society what are the things we value what price are we having to pay for it and how could we reform or fix that you know is the price of social justice giving up my laptop? Should it be? Or should it be possible to construct, to design, to, to build a you know, modern mass industrial society that is also predicated on fair wages and good working conditions for people, that values every life? And one of the reasons why I will talk and talk about this is because it's a bottomless pit. There is no end to that discussion. When my daughter was very young, she once asked me what the world was made of. And I said, well, it's made of atoms. What are atoms made of? Well, it's made of sort of protons and neutrons. What are protons and neutrons made of? Well, they're made of quarks. What are quarks made of? They're made of superstrings. What are superstrings? Well, they're vibrating in 11 dimensions, but seven of them are rolled up really small. And at that point, she stopped. Okay. Had she not stopped, I would have, you know, where would I have gone next with that one? You know, best theory. Uh, maybe underneath it all, there is actually a Newtonian universe of ping pong balls. We don't know yet. We haven't reached it. There are always deeper questions to ask. And with anything around digital technology, there is always a deeper question to ask. And you should at least be open to that question. I was going to ask you what a philosopher, which you were, was doing playing with technology. And now suddenly, in what you've just said in the last couple of minutes, I can see that maybe a modern-day Kant or a modern-day Hobbes would actually be fascinated by this stuff he'd have a laptop he'd want to know how a smartphone worked that that i guess is modern philosophy hey we, we, you know, with good word processor wittgenstein might have actually finished the philosophical investigations <laughs> you see you said we're a philosopher and of course the point about doing philosophy at cambridge is you just are a philosopher you, you can never recover from it <laughs> you never stop uh, cambridge doesn't teach you philosophy it makes you a philosopher and that has you know underpinned a lot of what, what i've done Actually, my background is slightly more peculiar than that, in that I came to Cambridge with four science A-levels as a medic, and after half a year realised I did not want to be a doctor, and that medicine was really not very interesting. As in Cambridge at the time, this was back in 1980, you did three years of, of um, academic medicine and then three years of, of clinical. So you, the only human beings you got to touch were dead for the first three years, and it was very dull shall we say, not for me. And so in my first year, I moved to philosophy, largely as, as almost a recovery, wanting to be stimulated, wanting to be made to think. And I then did psychology part two, experimental psychology part two. And then after a year break, I did the diploma in computer science. So my thought at the time was I was interested in artificial intelligence. I was interested in theory of mind. What is consciousness? How do we, how does it evolve? How does it develop? How does consciousness emerge from a complex system? And that question was stimulated when I was doing philosophy. And I thought I might get some way to understanding what it was to be conscious doing psychology and then how to build a consciousness 
during computer science. Of course, we don't know yet how to build consciousness. But what happened instead was, instead of staying in that almost academic world of, of you know, the abstract idea of what it is to make a mind, the three elements linked together in a very different way uh, to make me almost a, sort of a humanist, liberal, philosophical approach to the applications of technology in the modern world. So I realised that I understood enough about you know, the politics, the sociology, the nature of society, the economics and the technology to A, be what I believe you know, a good journalist, but also to, to get involved. Uh, and so after I did the diploma, I got a job working in a, a software house on King's Parade in Cambridge called Ben Sasson and Chalmers, and I was a, a coder and a developer and then a consultant for them for a couple of years. Then went to work for Acorn Computers, where I worked on the engineering databases and was there at the, the time when the ARM chip was being developed. So you know, got to know some of the great people working there, um, you know, Sophie and Mike and, and, and you know, all the others. It was just a fantastic time, you know, you know, brilliant time to be alive, to be young, to be working in Cambridge with so many amazing people around. Then went down, worked for a, a training company in London, and, and found myself then in the early 90s working for Pipex, which was one of the early internet service providers back here in Cambridge. And there's a guy called Peter Dorr, who's still around in local politics. And Peter was a visionary in that he realised that the internet was going to be important and that it was not going to be restricted just to academic or government use. And so he created Pipex, the public IP exchange, the public internet protocol exchange as one of the very first private internet providers. Even they called it the Public Internet Exchange, it's a bit like public and private schools. The internet is actually private, but we call it the Public Internet. Let's not go there. Uh, but I do like the semantics of it all. <laughs> Another rabbit hole to go down later, perhaps. I worked for Peter for a bit doing training, and then he asked me to be his internet ambassador. He actually originally asked me to be his internet missionary, and I said, the jokes will be unbearable, there's no way I'm doing that, so I'm going to be your internet ambassador. And my job, this was in 93, 92, 93, 94, was to do cool stuff. That's it, my job description, do cool stuff, as in, make people think the internet is interesting, brackets, so Pipex can sell them internet connections, close brackets. But I wasn't a salesperson, I wasn't actually trying to flog the stuff. So I called up our local MP at the time, Anne Campbell, and said, would you like a website? And her um, researcher said, what's a website? And I said, you want one? They said, oh, okay, fine, built one for her. Did some work with Comic Relief, built a website for them, um, did the Cambridge Folk Festival's first website, did the Edinburgh Fringe first website, and crucially worked with The Guardian and The Observer to put some of their stuff online, working with some, some local uh, company called Cityscape, as well as Pipex, because Cityscape were doing web design at the time. So it was all really exciting, and that led me then to go to The Guardian, and I was their first head of new media, and I built the first Guardian website, which was in 95. And so I found myself if like, at the leading edge of this curve of, of innovation, um, working in right at the heart of the newspaper industry, right at the heart of, of the burgeoning web industry, yeah, just at the point where we're trying to imagine possibilities. You know, What could be done with this technology? If you have pervasive networking, and it was clear that network was only going to get faster and more you know, easy to use and, and, and more, more, more sort of pervasive if you had that. And if you had a tool like the World Wide Web, which was easy to navigate, where it was quite straightforward to make connections between things and where increasingly you could do multimedia, so you could publish video and sound as well as images and text and link them all together, what could you create? And then what, how did that challenge existing information businesses? 
Because the thing about newspapers is that the problem newspapers were designed to solve 200 years ago has been solved by the internet. And the business models they built around sharing information that was hard to get your hands on by putting ink on paper and then shipping that paper around is no longer the optimal solution to the problem of how do you find out about the world. And so the reason newspapers are in crisis is that they don't currently have a thing that only they do and that they can make money out of. You came at this problem, I think, from the point of view of being a convivial bloke who wants to share knowledge. I wonder to what extent you think that actually the internet is a pretty sinister place as well. Um, the network is not in itself sinister. There are sinister places on the internet. So one of the most influential sort of texts in, in my life has been a book uh, called Code by Larry Lessig, Lawrence Lessig, uh, a lawyer. And he points out that, that he says, code is law that the software that creates the internet, that runs on our computers and the routers that, that links it all together, was written by people, and it embeds values and approaches, you know, in a sense, and he reads it as being like a legal system. You know, there are rules about what you can and can't do on the internet that are created by the software, in the way there are rules about what you can and can't do in the physical world that are created by you know, the legal system, parliament, the judiciary, whatever. Crucial thing is, of course, you can remake the code. So we made choices. We have currently built an internet based around the current version of the internet protocol, which is version 4 on many machines, version 6 increasingly rolling out, that has certain affordances that make certain things possible. And it makes censorship and control quite difficult. And that is both a very good thing, very you know, free, liberal, we want that, and a very dangerous thing, because it allows people whose values are different, whose desires may be dark, to use the network to serve their ends, which may not be ends I agree with, in the same way as it allows us to use the network to serve which like ends I do agree with. But, you know, hey, back to Cambridge and moral philosophy, I'm enough of a relativist to say, you know, there are no absolute morality, there is no absolute morality here, you know, just because I happen to believe and can make a strong argument in favour of you know, social justice, being nice to people and equitable, equitable dis, uh, distribution of resources, doesn't mean that that is an absolute. Um, so do we have to put up with, if you can use that phrase, what perhaps, I don't know, ISIS might do with Facebook or Twitter? Do we have to tolerate that so that we can have Edward Snowden and Wikipedia and all the things that you might feel more comfortable about? I'm not sure I'd put those in, in contradistinction in the same way. See, I, I sort of, yeah, 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 standard philosopher thing. I'm going to challenge the premise of the question. I would have expected nothing less, Bill. What do you mean by tolerate? Um, you know, it depends what the meaning of this is. Step but back. on the basis that this is an interview and not an essay. Step, no, but step back. Okay. If we want a network where we, you and I, as nice men, can act relatively freely, yeah, then that's going to require certain structures would allow nasty people to act relatively freely too. For example, if you put strong encryption in everywhere so that the NSA and GCHQ and other people cannot easily survey and read your communications, then they can't easily read the communications of people who may be bad actors. So in terms of tolerate I think more embrace. We have to allow for the possibility that 
just as language, you know, sort of, you, you, you gave me the gift of language and what my benefit of it is I learned how to curse, as Caliban says. You give people this capability and they use it for good or bad. We have values within, say, you know, British society that we will fight to preserve and finding ways to ensure that those values are not threatened by the network is part of what government tries to do. At the moment, I don't think it does it very well, but it's part of what government tries to do. Doing that in a way that doesn't actually break the network is really quite hard. And we see, for example, in China, where the Chinese approach has been to put the Great Firewall around to try to limit the flow of information into and out of China, and then within the country to very carefully monitor all communications and to take down or punish those who post communications which they think, which the authorities think, may lead to social disorder, whilst leaving up conversations that are very critical of the government. So it's okay to criticise, it's not okay to call for you know, change on the ground. And what you've got there is a government that's investing vast amounts of time, money and effort, tens of thousands of people, to manage what happens on the network. Now, that's one model. And in terms of you know, sort of Chinese politics and, and what the Chinese people are living with, it is working for them. We have a different model over here, one which prizes freedom of speech in a different way. And it's not clear yet that we know what we're going to do or how we're going to cope with the disruptive impact of the network because it allows such easy communication. The parallel is, of course, with the creation of the printing press. You know, printing presses were controlled, they were licensed, they, things were censored for many years because it was seen as being such a disruptive technology. Eventually, it was realised you can't do that. And now you don't need a licence to print a book. You don't need a licence to put a blog post up. If we want to get to a situation where we can guarantee the safety of our online interactions, we would also, in order to do that, I believe, lose much of the value of those interactions. So to come right back to your original question, do we need to tolerate it? Yes. I think it's, it is the dangers of acting in a way where you try to control all online communications are enormous for many things which we value in society. The, the, the core freedom to go about our lives unobserved, the ability to have conversations. Okay, this one's being recorded, but for us to have our conversations in Fitzbillies, whatever, and not think that we're being overheard or, or being monitored. You know, why should we give up that right just because we happen to be talking on Skype or Google Hangouts instead of face-to-face -face in, in, a, in a room? So why, Bill Thompson, are you not as rich as Croesus. You know, you've worked with a lot of people who've made quite a lot of money, and this world that you work in generates vast amounts of revenue for some people. And yet you're not Bill Gates, you know. You're, you're, you're not Mark Zuckerberg. You probably could have been that kind of person. So why did you go down a, a, a different path? Well, of course, you can't know that you would have been a successful entrepreneur. You would actually have made money had you decided to go for it. Um, so I never decided to go for it, so it becomes a, a counterfactual question. Crucially, um, because I always wanted to be able to be critical, because I always valued the ability to speak my mind over the ability to make money. And so at a number of crucial junctures in the past, I chose 
a different path. You know, I have friends who have gone on to be wealthy and powerful and influential. Um, but you always reach a point there where there are then things you can't say um, because you, know, you need to defend the interest of the business or whatever. And I've always preferred to be outside um, commenting on it, um, criticising where necessary and also supporting where necessary. So, so as a journalist, I don't take freebies. Okay, so if you send me a laptop to review, I'll review it and then I'll send it back to you. Or send me a phone to review, I'll send it back to you. And my colleagues, some of my colleagues are, shall we say, slightly less concerned about that issue. And it's always seemed to me that the problem is that if I keep the thing you send me, I can't say anything nice about it. I can only be critical. Because if you send me a laptop and I write a really scathing review, everyone says, oh, look at Bill sticking it to the man, that's good. Even though they gave him a free laptop, he's, you know, come down on them, that's, that's what we expect, independent journalism. And if it's the most beautiful machine in the world ever, and I say that, they say, well, there's Bill just being bought. So it doesn't work for the person giving you the machine either. You can't be nice about it. And I want to reserve the right to be absolutely positive about something without anybody thinking that my view has been bought, just as I want to reserve the right to be absolutely negative about it. Briefly, if you can. That's a Steve Hewlett phrase, actually, isn't it? Briefly, if you can, Bill. Um, what is this project that you're doing at the BBC to do with archive recordings? It sounds fascinating. So five years ago, I inadvertently found myself working as a head of partnerships for the BBC Archive. And it was supposed to be a six-month you know, attachment, you know, give us some advice, a bit of consulting. You know, and it's turned into a, a real job because, firstly, it's too interesting for me to stop. And secondly, because the BBC really wants to get this right. Over the last 90-odd years, the BBC has accumulated a collection of stuff, um, some of it inadvertently, some deliberately, um, kilometres of paper documents, files and stuff like that, emails, and of course things you might have heard of like television and radio programmes and stills and, and offcuts and rushes and things like that. And much of it is now being digitised just for purposes of preservation and storage. And the rights issues around it are complex and interlocked and you know, make the Gordian knot look quite simple. But there is an understanding that if the BBC is to act as a cultural institution as well as as a broadcaster, then a way needs to be found to unlock the value of the archive. And some of that will be just the availability of whole programmes for people to watch or listen to, either free or paid for, you know, download to own or DVDs, well, all the same stuff. But there's then much more about the value to the research and scholarly community, to, to teachers, to individuals for their own interests, to, you know, to, to the wider society about treating the BBC's archive as a great national collection, similar to that in the British Museum or the British Library, and finding ways for people to get access to it, to, to look at it, yes, but also to use it in various ways. And so what I'm currently doing is exploring if, like, the limits of what is possible with the old stuff, and some of it you'll never be able to sort out because it's just too complicated. But then also the question about what about the new stuff? So can the BBC commission in a way that makes it easier for people to get access to the stuff that's being made now? Because you know, tens of thousands of hours of television are being made every year. You know, here's, here's a small example. So some of you may have heard of a television programme called Poldark. Apparently it was very popular with people who like watching Scything for some reason. <laughs> now... There are a few scything scenes in Poldark, but they probably filmed hours of scything. Okay. Now, that may be of interest to certain people for certain reasons, but if you're interested in scything technique, 
perhaps that would be a really useful basis for an interactive video. Suppose you could get your hands on the rushes where the actor was being shown how to scythe. Yeah, they've never been broadcast. But at the moment, there's no way for you to even find they exist or license them from the BBC. There is no structure that would allow that to happen. Mark Damazer, when he ran Radio 4, used to talk about the Wikipedia of the air, the idea that you could go onto a search engine and put in... Uh, the example he used to use was Tom Stoppard, and then you would get all the BBC's interviews with Tom Stoppard, including the offcuts, and you'd get every play that he'd written that had been on BBC television or BBC radio... That would be a terrific resource, wouldn't it? It, it would. Um, and that's the sort of thing we're aiming for. And in fact, we have a project called the Research and Education Space. Go find it on a popular search engine of choice that is trying to do that not just within the BBC, but for everywhere. So it would also bring you up all the British Library material about Stoppard. It would bring you up what the National Theatre had for old productions. It would bring you up you know, sort of his US and Australian productions as well. So, so there is this idea to use a technology called linked data which is core web technology, to bring together, to aggregate all of the different catalogues of all the different collections and to allow you to search them in a single way and do it much more effectively than Google. Because if you type Stoppard into Google, you'll get everything that has the word Stoppard in. Because actually what you want is everything relating to the living playwright Tom Stoppard, born 1920-whatever. Um, and you can do that using semantic web technologies, and you can't do that using keyword search. So within the BBC, we're doing all the policy stuff, and we're also trying to solve the technical problem, because don't forget, the BBC is an engineering organisation first, and a broadcaster second. Oh, controversial. <laughs> True. Now, the Bill Thompson of previous centuries would have his work accessible only on scrolls, or in uh, academic journals of one sort or another. Uh, but we can keep up with you through Twitter. So, at Bill T is a, is a great source of amusement and education. W what's the value to you as a philosopher of communicating in 140 characters? Um, well, Twitter's just lovely. I've been using Twitter for eight years now as an early adopter. I see Twitter as being like sitting in a cafe with millions of interesting people. And, and they're all muttering and talking to each other. And you can just tune in to any one of the conversations and then tune out when you need to get back to your work. And so it's just a way of... It is about snippets. You know, it's, you know, oh, that's interesting, this is interesting. Because a lot of stuff I post on Twitter, either it's, you know... Trying to you know, the the, perf the perfect little sort of the bonmo the bonmo on Twitter, which I occasionally do, but also I post lots of photos. But obviously, I will be posting links or retweeting other people. Twitter's about weaving these connections between people and ideas, uh, amplifying some people's messages, drawing things to people's attention, commenting on it. I say it, it is an ongoing conversation. Two years ago, I was involved in a project with the BBC called The Space, which was a digital arts website. And what they did was they wrote a code that monitored 500 Twitter users and tried to establish what they were talking about within various subject areas and the sentiment that they were talking and the frequency with which they were speaking. And they used this analysis of 500 Twitter users to generate music drawn from thousands of samples of music recorded by the musicians of the Britain Symphonia and to do so with rhythm and pace, and to basically to sonify, to reflect what Twitter was thinking at any particular time. It was live, and it ran for nine months, and it was fantastic. 
And that's what Twitter is. Twitter is us all thinking out loud and sharing and collaborating and bouncing in and out of conversations. And so for that, in a sense, it's really important to me because it's my way of hearing my world. That's not everyone. It's a very selective group of people. I follow a few thousand people, I have a few thousand followers. But I can hear them thinking. And it informs my thought and gives me the news. You know, I'll stand on the platform at Cambridge Station. Ten years ago, I'd have been reading the paper, The Guardian. Now, I'll be scrolling my smartphone and reading Twitter. And I'm probably getting more access to more interesting stories from Twitter than I ever did. Sorry, Alan, from The Guardian. So we've reached the coda of our interview, uh, Bill. I didn't warn you about this, but this is the way we finish all these interviews. It's the Cambridge questionnaire. I'm going to ask you some questions about the town that you live in i want to know first of all what's your favorite walk my favorite walk is is along the brook between long road and and brooklyn's avenue uh, past the allotments um because you get a sense of cambridge growing the new obviously new estates being going up all the time you get a sense of the old town um there's the allotment there are the horses there's there's the sports field it's a perfect little capsule of cambridge what's your favorite place to eat my favourite place to eat is, is probably Indigo Cafe um, because they do a brie and cranberry bagel there that is to die for uh, and they have the friendliest and nicest stuff. And do you have a favourite shop? My favourite shop in Cambridge? Oh, gosh. It changes over time. Because um, my favourite shop in Cambridge no longer exists, which is Borders Bookshop. Oh, indeed. Uh, so that remains my favourite shop. Um Heifer's um, classical music shop before they closed that down and before that the Penguin Bookshop which is now part of Fitzbilly's. So my favourite shops in Cambridge don't exist anymore. Uh, Bill Thompson, thank you for being so modern and at the same time so ancient. Let's go and have a sandwich at the whim, shall we? <laughs> Bill Thompson and Nicky Padfield were our guests this week on Cambridge Minds, which is a TDC production for Cambridge 105. We'll have two more thinkers for you to meet in a few weeks' time. I'm Trevor Dan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>